Good evening from Charlotte. It is Wednesday, August 11th, 2021. I am James Briarton. We have lots to get to, including a brand new interview you have not yet seen before here in the Carolina Weather Group, introducing you to what I know will be your next travel destination once you're feeling comfortable traveling out to Norman, Oklahoma. Well, there's a National Weather Museum and Science Center. I did not know about it until we taped the interview you're about to see. It's very cool stuff. Stay tuned. You're going to want to see that in just a moment. But let's talk about the big red ticker that is scrolling at the bottom of our screen. If you're watching us live right now on YouTube, Facebook, or, of course, the Carolina Weather Net, we have a flash flood warning that goes until 1130 tonight. This is in Mecklenburg County. As we take a look at radar, you can see a lot of the storms that we saw throughout the afternoon have begun to wind down. We do still have some rain and some uh, thunder where I am here in Charlotte and Mecklenburg County, where this flash flood warning goes into uh, effect or has been in effect and will continue until 1130 tonight as a result of really what is the second severe thunderstorm warning for this county alone today. The second microburst observed on radar. We'll talk about that, but we had a whole line of storms that were just scattered across the area today. They were the pulsing variety. They're the ones that tend to spin up really quickly and sometimes break down just as quickly. So our hats off to the National Weather Service across the region, but especially our home market here, Greenville, Spartanburg, and Greer, as they were trying to fire out these severe thunderstorm warnings all along the I-85 corridor and up in the foothills and the mountains as well, too. If you're watching right now live in the comments with love to know what you saw if you saw any break from that 105 degree heat index in the form of some of these strong to severe thunderstorms and if so what the cost was Uh, but let's talk a little bit about what we saw i mentioned that we had two uh, microbursts observed on radar here in the mecklenburg county at just outside of charlotte and they were almost in the exact same area if you're familiar it was uh, kind of to the north and to the east of uptown almost towards where ikea is a little shy of you know, the university city area and you can see one of two of them here where a thunderstorm balloons up into the sky and then begins to collapse down on itself so if you're looking at these pictures with me right there with the bright reds and the greens push out from one another that's a thunderstorm downburst pushing pushing down and sending wind outbound like two giant waves away from the epicenter of the storm 59 mile per hour winds estimated by the terminal doppler radar here in charlotte and again that was the second one we saw in that location today we saw other similar storms across the upstate of south carolina across western north carolina and again even in northeast georgia if you're watching from there tonight so this is just one example but we're honing in a little bit at this hour at nine o'clock on Charlotte because of the two microbursts seen in the same spot, as well as the flash flood warning, which continues as we go on through the next couple of hours or so. But let's look at these warnings that were issued today by the Collective Weather Service again along the I-85 corridor, along the I-77 corridor, even up towards Virginia. They had their own round of severe weather, too. But you can see on your screen right now, these are not active warnings. This is just a collection of all of the warnings, a dozen or more warnings that were issued by the collective weather services that do cover the Carolinas. And you can see some of the storm reports that came in with these too. So let's take you in now towards um, Gaffney, South Carolina, where we had reports of downed trees, even in Cleveland County, more downed trees there. I'm just clicking on a spattering of these, but that's exactly how the weather played out today, a spattering of strong storms that brought down trees and power lines across the area up towards Forest City in North Carolina. We had some as well. Uh, And again, with the weather service in Impressed themselves by looking at some of these storms that were playing out here near Carnesville, Georgia, where they saw one inch size hail and a thunderstorm that at times was ballooning 
50, almost 60,000 feet into the air. And of course, you'll recall that the taller those storms are, a lot of times, uh, the stronger they are as they're just working on all that atmospheric convection. Up towards Morganton, where Scotty Powell lives and is located, we had down power lines. That was one of the first storms we saw this afternoon. They had storms there yesterday as well, too, in this now second day of weather that came rolling on through. We do have uh, reports here in Charlotte again where a flash flood warning remains in effect. The West Moreland Moorhead Street uh, becoming impassable near Irwin Creek. Uh, that is just some of the flooding we're hearing about near that uptown epicenter. Uh, but again, also a, a report of uh, downed trees not only here in Mecklenburg, but up in uh, Cabarrus County near Concord. And so you can kind of just get an idea of the reach of this storm. And I don't even want to uh, leave out, I should say, the reach of these storms, plural. Uh, other communities to the north of uh, Charlotte along I-77 and along I-40, where again, you can see as I'm clicking on these, if you're watching on our video production tonight, we have trees down in East Bend, trees down in Roaring River, trees down in Union Grove. And if you're listening on our podcast tonight, maybe uh, later tonight or at any point during the week, you might just be recalling back seeing that kind of uh, barrage of warnings that went up across the area. So clearly a very active day, fueled a lot by that heat, but also just all of that humidity in the atmosphere. We just kind of rang out like a sponge and we we had lots of moisture here in Mecklenburg County that eventually uh, led to that flash flood warning being issued because there was just plenty of uh, moisture, again, to, to ring on out. And so there's uh, that flash flood warning that goes until 1130 tonight. You'll continue to see that scrolling at the bottom of your screen. You can always get real-time warnings from the National Weather Service by following us on Twitter, Carolina WX Group, or by streaming our Carolina Weather Net. It's free on YouTube. It's the place for Carolina weather fans. We built it just for you. You can find it streaming throughout the day. The best of the Carolina Weather Group alongside real-time radar, sky cams, and across that big red ticker that I keep telling you about in case you want to stay up to date and all the latest that's happening with these storms. One other storm to tell you about. This one has a name. It's called Fred. Here's the latest from the National Hurricane Center at the 8 o'clock advisory now. It is Tropical Depression Fred as it makes its way over portions of Haiti and the Dominican Republic. It was previously a tropical storm. It is forecast to remain a depression for the next 24 hours or so. And then as we work our way towards the end of the work week, maybe about that 2 a.m. update on Friday, able to regain its tropical storm category. Uh, Categoristics if it's able to stay far enough out over the water, just offshore of Cuba, where it can have access to that warm water. And then we're forecasting, uh, the Weather Service is forecasting that Fred will kind of slip between Cuba and the Florida Keys right now in the middle of that cone. And then uh, that cone expands out to include a whole lot of the Gulf Coast. But again, that west coast of Florida with a possible landfall somewhere just outside of uh, maybe Mississippi, Alabama, or that Georgia, Florida kind of. Uh, state line and panhandle there of Florida as we look ahead towards the end of the weekend and on Monday. So what does that mean for the Carolinas? Well, right now we're we're not really in any of the cones. We do come relatively close on that very last frame here on the cone for South Carolina. Again, the cone should be interpreted that the center of circulation could be anywhere inside that cone. And the Science and the research and the technology behind this, the, the Hurricane Center has been doing a magnificent job with accuracy on track 
And so I wouldn't be surprised if come Sunday night, we're looking at, again, a possible landfall into that Monday time frame along that west coast of Florida. And then we are going to watch. We're going to watch here in the Carolinas as this comes ashore. It will be anticipated to weaken, of course, once it comes on land. It needs that warm water in order to maintain its stronger characteristics. So once it kind of comes ashore, we would expect it to weaken a little bit. But then we're still going to be watching for gusty winds and rain to move into the Carolinas next week. Some of that rain could be beneficial. We've been having lots of warm weather, of course, and uh, not a whole lot of rain for it, uh, be it some of these severe storms we've been seeing. So I know my lawn would love uh, some of that rain if we can get it at just the right magnitude uh, to bring us some of that relief. But again, here's what the uh, National Hurricane Center is uh, forecasting in terms of the earliest reasonable arrival time of those tropical storm force winds. That's 39 miles per hour is what makes it a tropical storm force. And so we can expect that to move into like Miami and the Florida Keys and South Florida by Friday at 8 p.m. up along the west coast of Florida, Tampa about 8 p.m. on Saturday. And then those winds arriving along the panhandle of Florida and the Gulf Coast by Sunday morning out ahead, of course, of when the actual uh, rain and circulation would arrive. The winds are going to get there first. So here's a look at the GFS model run across the southeast as we play it out of the next few days. Just wait for it. Here comes Fred. And right about here, as we make our way into Saturday, into Sunday, this particular model run, keeping it real close to Fort Myers. But again, that forecast cone does have a little bit of margin of error as we come out this far. And this is just one computer model's take. As you can see, that area of circulation continuing to stay now offshore, off of Tampa, and then making its way uh, just here into the panhandle or so, Tallahassee of Florida. And then actually, this particular model run kind of just has it falling apart. But again, we could anticipate seeing some of that rain, some of those gusty winds as we make our way into our forecast here in the Carolinas for next week. And if we do it right, it might actually bring us some relief to those dry conditions we've been seeing. Uh, But we'll watch the intensity of this storm very closely because as we've seen with other storms this year, uh, it's always in the cards that you could get some intensification as long as it's out there over water. So if it plays its cards just right, if Fred plays its cards just right and stays out over water long enough, We'll have to watch exactly to see how how strong it gets. But right now, the official forecast from the National Hurricane Center keeping it at tropical storm level uh, as it makes its way sliding between Cuba and Florida and then up towards the southeast as we look ahead to next week. Of course, the Carolina Weather Group will have updates on that as we continue to track that over the course of the next few days days. So that's just a look at what's happening right now uh, from the National Hurricane Center and around the Carolinas as some of you are wondering why didn't I get any rain today? It was really hot. I could have enjoyed some rain. And others of you are saying, wow, that was quite the storm, very intense. And so we'll be watching more of that here in August. It's summertime. We have lots of moisture and heat to work with in the atmosphere. And as we've seen over the past two days, the atmosphere is taking advantage of that. Now, if uh, you are wondering where else you can get your weather nerd on, well, there is a place for you. It's located in Norman, Oklahoma. It is the National Weather Museum and Science Center. And uh, I'm going to toss it on over now to a piece of tape you have not yet seen before here in the Carolina Weather Group, our panel talking about and learning all about this museum. They've got some really cool exhibits. We think you're going to like it, and uh, we're going to toss to that now. And, of course, we'll continue to scroll at the bottom of the screen. Any new updates or warnings we get from the National Weather Service. 
Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. We're happy to have you this evening. And tonight's guest is Pat Hyland. He's a research meteorologist out in Norman, Oklahoma, and he works at the coolest place on Earth, especially for us weather nerds, the National Weather Center there in Norman, Oklahoma, on the uh, OU campus, uh, which is a really cool place. I've been a few times, so I uh, definitely recommend if you're in the area to give it a, a you know, just go by and stop. It's a really cool place. So we'll talk about that and a lot of more things tonight. So uh, Pat, welcome to the show. We appreciate uh, you jumping on with us. I know uh, with, uh, as we're recording here, uh, June 2nd, I know it's been a busy spring with severe weather going on. So we appreciate you uh, jumping in tonight and letting us have a little bit of your time. So uh, welcome to the show. And we'll kind of give you the first question that we always give everyone. Tell us a little bit about your weather journey, uh, maybe some of the stops that you've had throughout uh, throughout your weather career. Thank you so much for having me on tonight. It's great to talk to you guys. I used to be afraid of storms whenever there was a thunderstorm nearby, um, especially if there was lightning, I, I hid. I, I was under the covers. I was one of those kids too that like I'd go like sneak into my parents' room and I'd like, whisper like mom and dad really softly. Um, just so like they would only a parent would be able to hear that at that level. Um, then they'd wake up and I'd basically stay there till the storm was done. But then, you know, I got curious about why I was, you know, terrified of these storms. So I started, you know, learning more about it, studying more about it. And I was like, wow, like this is this is so cool. Like, especially thunderstorms, like they're awesome. Like the way that they form and how this lightning's created. So cool. When I was eight years old, I actually bought a TV for my room so I could watch the weather channel. So I saved up all my allowance and uh, I bought a TV and my brother and sister didn't have a TV yet. This was back when like having a TV in your room was like a big deal because you didn't have the setup for every room to have a TV. Uh, I bought one of those like 13 inch sharp tube TVs, like the screens like this big, but the console's like this big. Uh, yeah, I had cable set up. I was watching uh, the weather channel and I was like, man, I want to be a meteorologist someday. This is so cool. Um, I actually took one of those high school aptitude tests where like, you know, what would you be most suited for in your career? And number one was atmospheric scientist, and number two was researcher. So when I was looking at universities, um, I actually, I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, spent about 14 years there and then moved out to Tucson, Arizona. Um, so I went from a place where the sun never shines to a place where the sun shines every day. Um, so it was a real mood booster for me uh, going out to those places. Um, so I miss the snow sometimes, but um, it was nice being out in the desert for a while. Um, and so I was looking at universities. Um, obviously, I looked at the University of Arizona because it was right there, uh, right in my backyard. Um, but I went to go meet with the department head at the University of Arizona and they said that they were getting rid of their undergraduate program in meteorology because they didn't have enough people coming into the program. They were like, well, you can get a degree in hydrology and then stay on and get your master's in atmospheric science and work with the folks here. And I was like, yeah, I don't want to do hydrology. Like I'm here for meteorology. So my other two schools that I was looking at, I was looking at Texas A&M and OU because I, mean, I was kind of looking for the places that were you know, big on severe weather and that were right in you know, kind of that tornado alley area. I visited Texas A&M and I like, I fell in love with the campus, the traditions, everything. It was a little weird when I was walking around and everybody was saying howdy to me. I didn't really know how to take that. Um, They're very nice people, but I wasn't ready to say howdy to everybody that I passed, I guess. Parents were like, well, you know, we've got one other school that's on your list at OU. 
So let's go take a look at that. We came to OU during OU Texas weekend. I went to visit with the, I actually met with the assistant dean of the College of Geosciences at that time. And um, was talking to me about the meteorology program. And then he laid out the blueprints for the National Weather Center. And he said, this is going to be completed in the summer of 2006. And everybody that's in Sarkey's Energy Center, it's a building that housed the School of Meteorology and the Oklahoma Climate Survey. And then everybody on North Base, which included the National Severe Storms Lab, the Storm Prediction Center, the Norman Weather Service Office, we're all going to move into this giant building and we're all going to be co-located in this space. And I turned to my parents, I'm like, they're building a Disney World for meteorologists in Norman. I have to be here. And so I did a 180. I'm like, I'm going to OU. Like, sign me up right now. Um, so I, I went to OU starting in August of 2004, got my uh, bachelor's of science in meteorology with a minor in math. Um, and then I stayed on to do a master's degree during my junior year at OU. I actually, um, I was doing really well in my cloud physics class. And so I was able to work with, uh, my professor, Dr. Bill Beasley on some lightning research. And so what we were doing is we were looking at the electric field mill network out at Kennedy space center in Florida. Um, and seeing how well those detect lightning strikes, because if you guys know when, when they're launching, you know, the Falcon 9 and things like that, if there's any sort of lightning activity around the launch site, they'll scrap the launch until they have a clean window. And so we were looking at how well those electric field mills would actually be able to detect the electric field and properly alert them about the lightning threat in the area. Um, so I get to work on that as an undergrad and then went into my master's working on uh, lightning research, a very similar topic that I was working on was if you've heard of the lightning jump algorithm that's used in the National Weather Service and with the GOES program, looking at uh, increases in lightning activity to show storm severity and possibly the uh, potential for tornadoes. Um, I was working on a similar type project like that for my master's degrees. After my master's, um, I spent some time as a research fellow uh, within the school. Um, and then um, I really love doing outreach and teaching meteorology to other folks. And there was a position opening up at the National Weather Center to be the coordinator of external relations. This person basically runs the tour program at the National Weather Center and then is in charge of the coordination efforts between the federal, state, academic and private units, whatever that's around the research campus area, of the weather center. Um, and so that was like the perfect position for me because I started giving tours the very first day that the weather center opened. Uh, my very first tour of the national weather center was Gary England. And he's basically a weather God here in Oklahoma. So no pressure whatsoever, I think. And then, you know, I was kind of getting the itch to get back into research a little bit more. Um, so um, after about five years of that position, um, I joined the OU cooperative Institute for mesoscale meteorological studies or SIMS um, supporting the national severe storms lab with NOAA. Um, and so right now I work, in, I'm in the SWAT team with NOAA at NSSL. Uh, so we're the severe weather applications and technology transfer team. So our job is to take research, put it in front of forecasters and work that into operations. So we test out the products, algorithms, and tools that we work on. Um, and then hopefully we get that into operations. We get feedback from them, figure out what we need to fix. I joined the National Weather Museum and Science Center first as a board member. Um, and then I worked my way you know, to secretary and then up to vice chair and I'm the chair of the Weather Museum and Science Center. I'm also the chair of the Norman Chamber of Commerce Weather Committee. It's the only chamber of commerce in the world that has a weather committee. It's been really awesome. And I just love 
you know, I love weather. I love doing the stuff that I do every day. You know, we've recorded somewhere close to 400 shows and you'd be hard pressed to find a meteorologist that doesn't cite the weather channel and some of their love in the early days. Um, yeah. Sounds like you've had I mean, just an, an amazing weather journey. Um, pretty jam packed, action filled, a lot of different positions. Can we talk a little bit more about what you do now with SWAT, which is an awesome acronym, by the way. Um, you're working through with this research and these tools. Uh, what kind of tools do y'all uh, research? It's basically, you know, anything that can help forecasters with their warning decision-making process. So what we're trying to do is figure out if we can develop any tools or algorithms that can help them because they have just, they're just inundated with so much information now. So they're trying to figure out, you know, what is most important that I need to look at? What's going to increase my lead time? You know, what can I do to improve my overall more decision-making process? Uh, so that's what we do uh, within our team. And we're part of the Warning Research Development Division with the National Severe Storms Lab. Um, so there's three separate divisions. There's the Forecast Research and Development Division, um, so they work kind of on the forecast side. So if you've heard of WAFs, the war and on forecast stuff, that's what they're working on. Um, there's the radar research development division. Norman, Oklahoma is basically, you know, the birthplace of Doppler weather radar. So they're working on all sorts of radar technology there. Um, and then our side's on the warning side. Um, so some of the things, you know, we, we have, uh, we just had virtual workshops this year uh, due to COVID. We usually have people that come into the National Weather Center. We have a really cool space called the Hazardous Weather Test Bed where we can actually set up the same workstations that these forecasters have at their local offices. And we're putting AWIPS and CAVE in front of them. And so they could pull up everything that they normally pull up at their offices. But now we're injecting those new tools and products and things they could take a look at and use. Um, and then we also have some tools that we use to kind of do some front end work. And then that goes into the software that's eventually gonna make it into operations at the National Weather Service. Um, so these, a couple of the experiments that I got to work on this past year um, was um, a collaboration experiment with forecasters because we have, uh, there's a new warning paradigm that's being suggested uh, going forward for the National Weather Service, where instead of having static um, polygons, which you draw a box around a storm, and then as that moves, then you draw a new box. Well, what if that box could actually move with the storm as it moves? And so we have something called threats in motion, which basically now the warning is following that hazard and all of the information, all the probabilities about that particular storm follow that too. So you're increasing the warning lead time for people. Um, you're also helping out those that have low risk tolerance as well. Uh, so it's a hospital and they, they, you know, they need more than a half an hour in order to do all their preparedness things. Um, that's something important and that's what they want to need. So we're able to do that through this kind of new warning paradigm. Um, that's all part of facets. That's forecasting a continuum of environmental threats. Uh, so we play a big role in many facets of facets and all of those things. So, um, and then another experiment I got to work on is, um, you know, new detection tools. So a new tornado detection algorithm and a new mesoscale detection algorithm. So those, those two algorithms have existed within the current um, framework within WarnGen with the National Weather Service for a long time. Uh, it's been like over 20 years and there haven't been really any revamps to it. And so we're kind of redoing some of those with some of the new tools that we have available um, that's helping to detect those. Um, and so we've gotten some really positive feedback from forecasters that, and they can really see themselves using these new tools and products. Um, so it's cool that, you know, you're working on those things 
you put it in front of forecasters, they're like, yes, please get this into operations right now. And then we try and get that in there as fast as we can. One of the things that um, has always kind of been brought up when we've been talking to other guests is kind of the disconnect that sometimes happens between different government agencies and TV meteorologists and the public sector and everything else. Uh, how much does it seem to help having, you know, a lot of people in the same building to work on these projects? It's huge because um, we, you know, we could work on these algorithms and tools, um, you know, day in and day out. But we really need to have input from our end users to know that it's actually going to make a difference in the decisions that they're going to make. So outside of just the forecasters, you know, we bring in emergency managers as well. Uh, so we have them. Um, they're basically getting those products or they're getting the warnings from the forecasters. They're making their operations decisions based on that information coming in. But we also have broadcast meteorologists that come in with us too. And at times we'll have experiments where all three of those groups are operating in tandem. And so the forecasters will issue the warnings and then the EMs will get that information. They'll be following them along and alert their people within an experimental setting. And the broadcast meteorologists will cut into live TV that we've created for them. And they'll go and talk about how these, you know, these plumes and these different objects are moving to alert people uh, to where the storms are headed towards. So um, having the buy-in from end users is huge. And that's why we try and collaborate with so many different groups is because we want to make sure that this is working for everybody. And we even do, we even do public surveys. We send out this information and we have them look at different color scales, uh, different mechanisms for displaying it, like time of arrival versus percentages versus other things. And so in that regard, you know, we're getting input from all the people who are probably going to use it more often, but then also the public who are going to make their risk decisions based on that information they're getting from them. As a general public, you're just talking about it. Emergency management, um, weather service, as well as TV broadcast METs are working on this at the same time. What is that messaging like to folks? Because if we, uh, in a forecast, say, hey, there's a 30% chance of rain showers this afternoon, you know, people sometimes don't get that that percentage of precipitation. Uh, I know these facets, polygons are like percentages and they're moving numbers. So, uh, what is that like? How has it been conveyed so far in testing? I'm really interested to hear uh, how, how each sector is communicating this. You know, it is really hard because now you're taking something that was a yes or no, and now you're putting numbers to it. Um, and it's really hard to do. And, you know, things like probability of precipitation pops, things like that. Like if you were to ask a meteorologist, what is 30% chance? You're probably, you're probably going to get several different answers from meteorologists, from the general public too. Uh, so understanding those probabilities is really, really hard. Uh, so it's going to require a lot of education to make sure that everybody understands this. Uh, but the other thing is, you know, it's, it's a lot of personal responsibility too, because, you know, those numbers and things can be presented to you but it's going to be up to that person to decide what their risk threshold is. And, you know, when are they going to decide to take action? So what these basically look like is, um, you know, these plumes or these objects is it looks like the hurricane track forecast. And so people are pretty familiar with those already. So you have that cone of uncertainty that goes out to a certain point in time. Now, ours is not, you know, several days, but it's it can go out to, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, can go out to an hour. If it's a longer range threat, it can even go out further than that. 
Um, so, and then within those, within those cones, those objects, now you have um, different areas where you have higher probability of being impacted and lower areas of being uh, impacted and they're colored differently. Um, and we're doing this for tornadoes. We're doing this for uh, severe thunderstorms. We're also doing this for lightning too. So we're working on a lightning product as well. Um, and so that lightning product is something that weather service forecasters are not used to. It's something that the public is not used to. Uh, but a lot of people are really excited about it because in terms of, you know, think about decision support services events, like a golf tournament, uh, a NASCAR event, a baseball game, a football game. You've got to have enough lead time to make sure that people are sheltered. And it could be on the, you could be on the order of, you know, 100,000 people or so. And so this is where this system can really help with improving our decision support services and making sure people are weather ready and that they're prepared is now you have this extra set of information that moves with the threats. It's no longer stationary, but uh, again, it's, it's going to, it's going to take a lot to teach people and to teach forecasters, you know, how to, for forecasters, how to set those probabilities based on their experience and what they're understanding about what's going on with the environment. And then the public understanding at what point do I need to start taking my precautions if I get into these different threat areas? Um, so it's a huge challenge. And that's why um, we have a team of social scientists that work with us as well. So social science is a big part of the field of meteorology right now. That's because we have to be able to effectively communicate our information to the public in a way that they can understand. Um, and, you know, we're a whole bunch of scientists and it's sometimes really hard for us to be able to talk to people in a way that they're going to understand. I say like, if you can explain it to your grandma, then you absolutely understand what you're talking about. So that's, we have to get down to that level is make sure that everybody can understand what's going on. Um, but the possibilities for this new paradigm shift uh, are pretty amazing and what it'll be able to accomplish. Your, my ears perked up when you said something about lightning because I, I provide support for a few NASCAR tracks. So I'm looking forward to that. That's uh, that is really cool. Uh, you're talking about social science and um, there's been a lot of uh, content on Twitter, weather Twitter here recently about uh, colors. And I, and I heard you um, mention that uh, there was a public survey out about colors. Uh, so we see colors for everything. Uh, Thunderstorm watch could be blue or yellow or red or orange. There's so many different color schemes now. And um, so my question to you is working in this in this research environment, working with social scientists, um, do you believe in the near term that there could be some less confusion as we kind of consolidate and have a good idea of we're going to say this is going to be yellow. This is going to be red. No matter. We're just going to change the whole, the whole scale where this represents yellow, this represents red, so on and so forth. You know, there are a lot of efforts being made right now to have a consistent message across lots of different sectors. It's really hard to do because um, not everybody is in the same room working together and putting all these things together. And, you know, individual private companies have their own graphics packages and things like that. And the weather service has their own. Um, but there are a lot of people who are working toward the messaging within um, those colors and within the threat areas too, uh, so that it's more consistent. Um, so for example, uh, we have a great graduate student at, um, at Sims um, and his name is Joseph Trujillo. 
and he's working with the uh, Latinx community and making sure that that messaging goes out to them and redoing some of the um, some of the colors uh, and some of the wording uh, for the Storm Prediction Center outlooks because certain words can mean different things, uh, even in different you know forms of Spanish can mean different things. Um, and so he's working with those uh, with uh, people from the Weather Service, the Storm Prediction Center, uh, higher up within NOAA, making sure that that messaging is consistent to the Latinx community. Um, and, you know, we see that all the time, too, you know, with the different colors from all the different entities. Um, and then some people will use uh, different they'll use numbers instead of the colors for the risk categories, too. So um, it's really hard to get everybody to be on the same consistent message. But the overall thing that we really hope for is that people are paying attention to those things and taking appropriate action for all of those Um because, you know, if it's if it's a difference between yellow and red and you're just, you know, slightly inconvenienced by it, at least, you know, there's a severe thunderstorm or tornado watch for your area and that you're looking at those things. So um, maybe there will be some day that we can all say, like, you know, this is going to be the color for a flood watch. This is going to be a color for um, severe thunderstorm watches. Uh, but the other thing that we have to think about is, you know, there are people um, that are uh, colorblind or have other visual impairments that don't allow them to see the same colors that we do. And it might not come off as big of a threat to a person like that. It's not seeing maybe more of a vibrant color. Um, so, again, that's we have to work with uh, lots of different groups to make sure that that messaging carries across all sorts of different people in, in society. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the National Weather Museum and Science Center. Uh, I'm sure all of us weather geeks would love to come check it out. But uh, for those who may have not have been able to visit the area, tell us a little bit about what's going on there. Yeah. So uh, the National Weather Museum and Science Center uh, is really the only museum in the country that's solely dedicated to weather. Um, I, you know, I said that one time and somebody's like, well, what about the stuff in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania with the Tony film, like, okay, I guess there's some stuff there too, but really like full blown museum. Like we have that here in Norman, Oklahoma. Uh, we have an 8,000 square foot facility um, that's in Norman, uh, in the Northern part of Norman. And we've been kind of in different phases uh, in our development with the museum. So our goal really is to, we wanna preserve the rich history of meteorology. We want to preserve it. We want to connect uh, all sorts of generations with weather and meteorology, get them excited about that. And we want to educate the public on what our field has gone through and then also the future of meteorology as well. And so we have scientists and community leaders that are here in the Norman area that have been working on this all the way since back in 2007. We've been doing this about 14 years now. We've been taking lots of baby steps our first, uh, our first baby step was uh, getting a traveling museum. And so after we got our 501c3, we are a nonprofit organization um, in Norman, um, we started to raise funds for the museum to have a way that we could increase our visibility in the public. So we had some uh, pieces of our weather museum that we were able to take out to various events, to schools. Uh, so we actually went to, you know, um, several different uh, groups and organizations. We also did fundraising efforts with Norman Public Schools and did outreach to their schools. We visited 5,000 uh, students in Norman over the period of about a week and raised money to help build this traveling museum. Um, one of the big ticket items is what you see behind my shoulder here. 
um, is the T-28 storm penetrating aircraft. This has really been the only plane that has ever flown directly through thunderstorms. I say directly through, like getting hit by hail, going through updrafts, downdrafts. Um, we're about to release a new podcast episode with Tom Warner, who is the pilot of this T-28. And his story is just absolutely fascinating about what he experienced within the plane um, and what he got to do. Um, you know, he started off in meteorology, got a master's, studied lightning, was a pilot. And he's like, yeah, sure, I'll fly through thunderstorms. He's not an adrenaline junkie, but he just loved, I mean, he loved weather and loved studying lightning. And so, you know, um, and that plane came to us uh, kind of fortuitously. Um, he had donated it um, and in the hopes that uh, to a weather museum in Nebraska in the hopes that it would be preserved, but all those parts ended up getting sold off to other locations and so what we've done at the Weather Museum and Science Center in Norman is gathered all those pieces back together and we've put it back. It's fully restored in the museum now. And we have an extra fuselage from another T-28 that we use as a full-blown flight simulator. So when you come into the museum, you can actually fly in a T-28 and go around in different types of weather in different places across the globe. So it's really cool. So yeah, so the Tribal Museum was first. And then we um, decided that we, you know, we really, we had more and more stuff coming in to house the museum. Uh, we had gotten some artifacts from the John C. Freeman Museum down in Houston. Uh, we actually took a U-Haul down there, grabbed everything, brought it back because he was done with the museum down there in Houston. And we were able to take some of those things here to Norman. Now we need a space to put all of it. So we got an 8,000 square foot warehouse facility. We've got all of our artifacts and displays set up. Uh, so it's a combination of older stuff new stuff. And we also have some interactive stuff to make it cool too. Um, our real good, like our goal, ultimate upper level goal, we want to build a multi-million dollar facility in Norman, preferably somewhere around the national weather center, really close there. Um, so we could have a full blown weather museum um, in Norman, Oklahoma. I mean, it makes sense to have something like that here. Uh, we have a lot of Titans in meteorology that started this up and that continue to support it. Um, so it's something that we've been really excited about for the last, you know, 14 years. And we have a lot of really good momentum right now. We were able to survive uh, the COVID pandemic. We're opening up Saturdays for reservations and those are starting to fill up now. Um, so we're hoping to carry this momentum further um, and really get this thing going pretty soon. Uh, promote your podcast and then let us know how we can follow you on social media. Yeah. So uh, our podcast is When Did the Storm Begin? We're bringing the history of weather to the forefront. Uh, so make sure that you check out um, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, um, and also um, head to nationalweathermuseum.com to figure out more information about the museum. We have reservations that are open now. So if you're in the area and you want to visit, we've got some times to sign up. Um, and you can follow us on uh, Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, and it's at National Weather Museum. Well, Pat, thank you for your time. We appreciate it. And we encourage you to go listen to the podcast. And if you're in the, the Norman or the Oklahoma City metro area, definitely head down to the museum and check that out. So we appreciate you watching tonight. Till next time, we hope you have a great evening.